Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navarra Media. And on the podcast version of this show, you'll get the stimulating and mind-expanding discussion from our hosts, but you won't get the music. That's because of the way rights and licenses work in the digital age. So you're really only getting half the picture, but there is an easy way to fix that. If you head over to the navaramedia.com website, you can stream the full show. It's easy enough. Just follow the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the standalone discussion in this episode of ACFM. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and as usual, I'm joined today by Nadia Idle. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today we're going to talk about the subject of friendship. Uh, and apparently this was your idea, Keir, so why are, we, why are we talking about friendship? Well, there's two reasons we want to talk about friendship. One of them is, is um, that friendships are being changed at the minute because we're in lockdown. Uh, because of the the whole COVID pandemic. And they're, they're, so friendships are sort of changing and going online and stuff, which is an interesting thing to discuss. But I think there's a there's another sort of more personal reason, which is quite appropriate for a topic of friendship. <laughs> but a sort of more personal reason why we might want to talk about friendship is because of our friendship, us three, our friendship, which is sort of developed to a large extent through this podcast, through doing this podcast and, you know, the project of the of the podcast in some ways. So it's sort of an interesting thing to reflect on, you know, probably 18 months into the project, quite a lot of the becoming friends, um, becoming friends, you know, on, on, online or down the wire or <laughs> via being recorded, you know. Obviously, we do meet up about, uh, outside of just recording this podcast, but, but there but is rarely, a big element. But rarely, yeah. yeah. I mean, most of it has been developed online. And in public, you know, in some ways they're like, sort of becoming friends has been in public through the podcast as well. Yeah, that's really although interesting, a, yeah. Although there's a lot that gets edited out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah the sort of... disagreements and blazing rows. <laughs> <laughs> the secret bootlegs are available. <laughs> where we slag off everyone, everyone else on the left. But Kia, tell us a bit more about what, what sparked your interest in this, or is it just that... Well, no, I, it's partly because I want to just reflect on it, like, you know, what's, what's, what's happened. <laughs> this is all going to sound a bit soppy now. But I've, I gen, I've come to genuinely care, genuinely care about you two, do you know what I mean? And so it's a really good, it's a good, it's, it's like it's interesting to me to reflect on the last 18 months, etc. about like what's gone on then? Well, why? Because what's really interesting about it then, I'll put it this way, is that when we did the first podcast um, in Jeremy's uh, kitchen or dining room whatever you know um we, we sort of knew each other a little bit but we i you know perhaps me and nadia were a bit friends but we weren't like best buddies and we weren't even sure that it would just be us three doing the podcast or usually doing the podcast we thought there'd be a rotating sort of cast but it sort of like clicked do you know what i mean um there was a sort of click thing going on which is sort of continued uh, and i think that is something that 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 is a one way into like, well, what is friendship? Why do you become friends with people? Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's definitely a shared project and like shared projects are things you can get that you develop friendships around or shared interests, etc., and all these sorts of things. But there is, there's something about, about becoming friends with people where there's some sort of compatibility. Do you know what I mean? Or, or yeah, some sort of compatibility which, which brings out certain aspects of your, the wider, what the, the your wider, I don't want to say personality, but you know your wider possibilities of how you act. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because I think there are people who would say, well, my friends are the people who I got to know in school. And the reason they're my friends is because we were in class together or, you know, we played football together and then we went to uni together or we still lived in the same place together. And um, we did certain activities together. So my friends are people that I play five-a-side football with or my friends are people who I go drinking with or my friends are people I do something with. And I think that's really interesting to talk about. And you mentioned the project. It's like, are friends people that we do a specific kind of thing with? And... I think, in my experience, that's that's what uh, there's definitely an association with that of like a larger group of people where there's been a, a vibe, and that's definitely a a, a a sort of attachment that I would call friends. But but for me, there's a there's there's a lot more about um, trust and care. Like my friends, my close friends are people who I I can call at times of trouble. Um, and who I have some kind of euphoric connection to. Does that make sense? I mean, maybe, I'm sure it's obviously not true of everybody, but I think that there, is, there certainly is a slightly, I mean, at least in our society, there's a, there's a, there's a slight, there's something of a tendency, I think, for this to be a bit gendered. Yeah, and I definitely. Think, and male friendship is often more project-based, in my experience. It's more based around doing something, which doesn't, I mean, there's a difference between being friends and colleagues, or, and, you know, so usually the, the project has to be something that's entirely voluntary, like you all want to be doing together. And the project can be anything, indeed. It can be having a five-side football team, having a band, like playing games, you know, whatever, you know, doing a podcast. I mean, a lot of the time people do the do the project, like form the band or whatever, largely because they want to do something together rather than, you know, rather than it being the other way around. But what I would say is, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but when I was growing up, when I was sort of a teenager and in my, I guess in my sort of early 20s, I had this real sort of ideal of these sort of pure intimate friendships, which, you know, sometimes girls seem to have with each other and boys didn't, but, you know, for good and bad reasons. And and some, you know, some guys had with each other who'd grown up together, whereby it was just, it was sort of, you were just sort of friends and just being friends was a thing in itself. And there was a sort of sense of mutual obligation that would withstand any kind of externalities. And I'll be honest, like, I've never really had that, although partly, I'll be honest, I've also never really had it, partly because I haven't really been single, like, for any length of time since I was 18, so, and I think that also is a, that also bears upon it, because I've basically had that relationship, you know, with a partner, which I, and I wonder to what extent, like, it all, yeah, if, like, always having a partner who you've got that relationship with sort of, I wonder to what extent it sort of precludes forming that kind of intimacy, you know, with other people. I don't know. And to what extent? That's that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. But um, I think it's. I wonder whether that is gendered as well, it's because I've yeah. got, I'm in two minds about that. So there's one story which says that you know a, a, a woman's relationship, you know, in terms of like uh, heteronormative relationships, a woman's relationship with um a man or whatever precludes and is more important and is like put up on a pedestal kind of by society that it's kind of okay to let other things go by the wayside because you've got to you know look out for your relationship or your uh or or your marriage or whatever so there's that kind of discourse which is a kind of mainstream discourse on the other hand there's also the discourse that it's the woman in a relationship in again heteronormative relationship here that kind of holds the friendships together that without 
without that, that she has her friends, but that, you know, if there's a divorce or a breakup or whatever, you've got this story that the guy ends up without having many friends. And, and I think that's interesting. I don't know to what extent it's true. But this idea that 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 society makes it difficult for for men to to form friendships at at, at an older age at an older age, I suppose. But I guess that goes full circle to what we're saying about um, about activities. Like that can change, it, or society makes it easier if there are actually activities where you can get to know people. I mean, it's interesting because we haven't really. T- I'm sure we talked about this before in different contexts. But we one of the interesting. You know, one of the things that's sort of lurking in the back of a lot with what we're talking about is that is the function of the household as well. I've always been really influenced by this kind of you know radical sociology from the seventies that you know, cr- you know really criticised the form of the household and the nuclear family household and said that it was just sort of calculated to break up people's familial you know friend friendship networks and it creates this kind of in neurotic kind of machine of intensity, you know, around the kind of the two, you know, the couple and the children. My friend, this song's for you. You're such a good man and you really ought to know. When we're apart, I think of you. Maybe not every day, but still I do. So I wrote this song as a present. So we did a call out for people who um, had songs that made them think about friendship and a lot of really interesting stuff came back. And there's this one song that I don't I don't know the band. I don't know. Maybe you guys do. It's called My Friend by um, by Babylon Circus. And I, I really like this song. It has this this line in it, which is that I, that that when we're apart, I think of you. OK, not every day, but I still do. And I, I find that really entertaining. And also, I think something that is is like as it is in attention and a lot of kind of male friendships or, or even like in, in friendships that I've had, where it's like you want to tell someone like how much you love them, but you just kind of want that expression to be measured as well. It's like you really mean a lot to me, but. But don't think that I'm obsessed. And I think it's explained really well in those few lyrics. Another song that's got a great line in it is uh, one that was suggested on your Twitter when you put the the request out. It it was Dave Eden, actually, on Twitter who suggested um, My Friend Dem by Chris Martin, which is sort of reggae sort of song uh, about about friendship. And, you know, all the people in there in the video for that are presumably all his friends, but it's got this great line where it says, when we link up, it's like a holiday. Just like, oh, that's great. It's sort of like I you have certain that friends line. that, yeah, that like take you out of the, your everyday worries, basically. And all of a sudden you're bang, you're into this other, other world. It's a great line. It's a good song as well. I really enjoyed listening to it. I did think like those are all guys you're talking about. None of your, none of, none of your crew are women, are they? But I still enjoyed the whole song. Yeah, man, I have a group of friends from uh, my master's degree in the UK. That's over 15 years ago. And we chat every day on WhatsApp. So like there's a group of 20 of us and we are still friends. And the same goes for my my uni friends in, in Egypt. And when you, and I think what makes it, special is that when you see these people again like even though you might not see them on a day-to-day basis or week to week or month to month it feels like it did like quote unquote back in the day yeah it's like a time travel thing it's like it's it's, it's totally like a time travel thing um and 
and I, I definitely think it makes a huge difference to your experience of life if you have that or if you don't have that. And I don't know to what extent it depends on how society is organised and also like different cultural differences um, from from one country or one experience to the next. But related to that, I suppose there are some there are some people that have always been good in a group at, you know, quote unquote, keeping the group together. For example, that that's definitely me. So I, I'm, I identified that we were leaving university in 2005, my master's, and I set up a, what was then an email list. And off the back of that email list, we are still friends as a group. And before lockdown, we see each other one at least once a month. Some people have kids, some people don't have kids. Um, and that's like a, a big part of my life and I couldn't imagine my life without I feel like I've always what I'm trying to say is I feel like I've I've always been in a crew I might not have been always been in a relationship with one other person but I feel like the crew is uh and again that I'm saying again that word this doesn't doesn't do it justice what I'm trying to say in English um and and that's a big part of my life. I feel like I've got several, several crews and it's not really about how often we see each other, although seeing each other is sort of something that we aim to do. We'll have to do the ACFM thing and put a strict typology on yeah. <laughs> crews, <laughs> scenes, gangs, etc. Et but what do, you, what do you call it? There, is, there isn't a word for it in English, which I think is the problem of, of saying like a group of people and it doesn't have a connotation that is kind of either negative or young for a group of of people who are middle-aged or whatever, who have known each other for some time, who go out together. Like my, my, my wider sort of friendship group, there we are, it's not a crew or a scene, it's a group. My wider sort of friendship group is quite sort of much more disparate than that. And like, you know, it goes in and out. I was thinking the other day, actually, about two weeks ago, uh, the football league would have ended, and um, I follow Leeds United. I've mentioned this before. And I've Do got a group you really? Of friends. Yeah, I've got a group that's of friends. A, that's a surprise, Kia. <laughs> but as soon as COVID nineteen hit and the season got cancelled, I basically didn't care. I thought I didn't care because it just seemed totally insignificant compared to what was going on. And then on the last, what would have been the last day of the season, where I'm pretty sure Leeds would have got promoted to the Premiership, I just started thinking, oh God, yeah, what would with my group of friends of which I watch football. And like, you know, we would have had this big, it would have been one of those peak moments, do you know what I mean, that keeps a group together, <laughs> partly because we would have got horrendously drunk, etc. But, it, you know, it is, you would have shared an intense experience together, do you know what I mean? Uh, and so that's gone. And so Lee's will probably go up and it will basically won't mean the same because you, you won't have that intense intensity, do you know what I mean? But then... I was thinking about when you were talking about how how what the the real continuity in in your friendship group. I was thinking I've got sort of like my 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 the the people who I think of as as my friends and who are like you know close friends to me. They sort of it's much more it comes and goes a bit. I think and I think I tend to um, orient myself to the the people who bring out something in me. Or, or in fact, it's something like. Um, I like the way I am when I'm around them. Do you know what I mean? Yes, <laughs> yes, I know people, exactly what you mean. Yes. I've got a friend in mind who basically I've known since I was sort of, you know, 18. Um, and, um, you know, he's, he's lived in different parts of the world. We may not see each other for a long, long time, etc. But it's that time travel thing, Nadia, where we're exactly the same. And, and like, I, I could not be 
any other way than the way I am with him all of a sudden. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. A so- level of like silliness. Do you know what I mean? It's something like that, which is a yeah. And so, so different people bring out different things in you, I think. And then you notice something. Oh, I really enjoy the way I am when I'm around that person. <laughs> so you tend to orient yourself yeah, towards that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think so. I think from what we're saying, there seems to be kind of three different aspects of friendship. There's the people who you got to know because you've done some kind of like activity with um and or you enjoy doing that thing with them there's the people who bring who you're you're conscious that it brings out something in you and you like being yourself around them and you miss yourself around that person and you know that it can't really exist except in that kind of dialogue um and then and then there's the other thing which we 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 haven't really talked about that much which is the people that give you something that you need so the people that you go to that when you need to lean on someone, when you need to take someone's opinion on something, the people who've seen you in... Your confidants. Your confidants, the people who've... But also the people who've seen you... There's a big trust thing there for me. The people who've seen you in at your best, at your worst, at your lowest, at your strongest, the people who validate yourself back to you in conversation and who you know will have your back to me that's a really really big thing those are those are my closest friends um and i i couldn't i couldn't imagine living without them i would really like us to play carol king's you've got a friend when you're down troubled and you need some love and care and nothing nothing is going right I mean that whole album Tapestry which which I was amazed to see that John McDonnell voted as like one of his favorite four albums of all time on Twitter like a few weeks ago or whatever but that um Carol King album Tapestry is 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 incredible and I think for me it holds a specific um importance because my mum used to sing a lot of uh, Carol King around the house when I was growing up so I kind of I've got that kind of memory of the early 80s of it but this specific song you've got a friend is just is such a sweet song um, but also I think the way it's composed in the chord progression is just is just lovely and brings all, uh, about all sorts of really nice feels, really. It's a theme and a question, in, like in philosophy, like going all the way back. So there's this famous quote from Aristotle where he said, oh, my friend, there is no friend. Or, you know, obviously there's different ways of translating it from the Greek, and I don't speak Greek, so... And like Derrida in the 90s wrote a whole book called The Politics of Friendship, really just basically examining the different interpretations over the centuries. People have tried to make of this statement like, oh, my friends, there is no friend. And nobody really knows what what he meant by it. And, you know, but it always seems to sort of, it seems to sort of gesture towards the idea that indeed there's some sort of ideal in... The, it, there's a sort of ideal of friendship and a kind of perfect reciprocity and ongoing intimacy, which is just sort of unrealizable in reality and like never, you know, is sort of always bound to dis- disappoint. And the question of friendship comes up again, you know, it keeps coming up, I think. This is sort of casual, you know, a bit of history, but I think 
I think it comes up it comes up a lot in the Renaissance, the question of friendship, in sort of Renaissance, like Italian philosophy and such. And it seems to me it's pretty much it's something that tends to crop up a lot whenever basically when people are living in cities and you're meeting you're meeting different people and people are forming relationships that aren't just with their ne- with their immediate ne- the small group of neighbors in their village or with their family or with their their lord or their employer or what have you and and the whole question of well what is the basis for the friendship like how much can you expect out of it how much should you expect out of it what starts to become something people really sort of fret about and try and formulate sort of relationship around and it is it's interesting it's one of those things which is always almost always sort of gendered in to some extent and Derrida's book I mean one of the points of Derrida's book is to sort of criticize a sort of androcentric history a sort of man-centered history or or a history which uses the the image of fraternity of like the band of brothers as a way of kind of imagining ideal forms of friendship because it has obviously sort of militaristic connotations and, you know, sexist connotations. You know, I mean, one of the kind of figures of fraternity that he's sort of critical of is the, is the ideal of the French revolutionary ideal of fraternity. And it seemed to, it always seemed to, you know, there's always been an obvious defence of that that we sort of mentioned last time that, you know, they're, they're, they're using a kind of unfortunately gendered language, but really they're talking about an ideal of solidarity and, you know, Derrida being Derrida, he's really not interested in concepts like solidarity. And I think that is, and the, an obvious counter position to that is J.D. Dean's new book about the idea of the comrade. And J.D.'s book is all about wanting to basically... I mean, so she's wanting to reclaim the idea of the comrade and comradeship, but she's not not really talking about it in relationship to the idea of friendship, Um, although I think it is interesting for us to think about that. She's talking talking about the idea of the comrade as distinct from... The ally. The idea of the ally, yeah, exactly. And she makes an extremely, to my mind, an extremely persuasive argument that the whole problem with the current kind of identity politics idea of allyship, that, you know, white people as allies to black people in anti-racism or, you know, men as allies to women in the struggle against um, misogyny and sexism, is that 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 formulation overlooks the extent to which, doesn't take account of the extent to which actually those people should be engaged in a common struggle. So it's not just women struggling for their emancipation and, and men supporting them from the sidelines. It's the fact that on some level... You know, men also have a vested interest in dismantling patriarchy and that we should all be seen as comrades in that struggle. And it's, you know, it's persuasive. And also the relationship between com- comradeship and friendship in, in the left tradition is obviously, you know, very close and, and very important. And I do sort of feel like, I would say, if I'm honest, in my own life, actually, there is a, there is a difference between the affect, my affective relationship um, um, and my sense of friendship with people who I'm sort of mates with or, or, or even sort of you know, quasi-family with, but who I'm not sure they're really comrades. Like, I'm not sure that they're, they're that... They're not, they're, I'm not friends with anyone who's, like, on the right politically, but people who I think are not that bothered, you know, who come the revolution, they'll probably stay home and not really get involved. You know, I, I feel a different kind of relationship to them, to the people who I think of, you know... You know, when the barricades go up, they'll be out there fighting with us. You know, and I, even though I don't think that's ever going to happen in a country like Britain, I don't know. What do you think about that? 
I guess I, my, my feelings about comradeship go up and down depending on whether I feel like people are behaving in a comradely fashion or not. So when I think that people who I don't know very well, who I expect to be my comrades, have acted in an uncomradely way, and I guess we have that concept of what it is to act in a comradely and uncomradely way, which I guess is a more solid concept than, than again, there's more terminology around this than there is for friendship. So... Um, so if, if people have behaved or like a group of people have behaved in an uncomradely way, then I tend to get down, I feel down on comradeship and like I doubt whether it can really exist and I doubt whether that trust is there because of the shared project or not. So that's my specific feelings about that. I do think they're different. What would you do if I sat out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I'm assuming that with a little help from my friends is originally Joe Cocker's. No, it's the Beatles. Is it originally the Beatles? It's a cover of the Beatles. So when, yeah, yeah, so, Be- so when did the Beatles? Beatles recorded it in '67. To me, the 1960, like it, the 1969, and it's only that one that I like. It's the 1969 recording of "With a Little Help from My Friends" in Woodstock, which I like the sound of, and I find it, I find it really like the really euphoric, the, the like the guitar progression. Um, I, I just love that version. Well, it is really interesting because it's sort of a ditty on... I mean, like a lot of those late Beatles songs, it's, it's a sort of ditty, really, um, on on Sgt Pepper's. And um, and Joe Cocker makes it his much more serious, serious and sort of impassioned statement, a sort of... Um, which, in a way, is I, I'm sure it's partly... It just suits the, the shifting mood of the times, doesn't it? I mean, it's 67, you know... Everything's great. Social democracy is going to last forever. You know, by by '69, it's already apparent that things, are, you know, people are going to need their friends. <laughs> given what's coming down the road, that's how I've always understood that. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I think it might be useful to get into Jodie Dean's concept of comrade a little bit more because I think it opens up some interesting. Because she, there is a bit in her book where she she does contrast comrades with friends and says something like. Um, Something like, uh, you, you don't have to be my friend to be a comrade, basically. You don't have to like someone to be a comrade. You don't have to be friends with them. Yeah, uh, agree. And, like, her thing with friends is it's like friendship is based on on a specificity, you know. I think she, she quotes Derrida, actually, and it's like a singular thing. Do you know what I mean? Compatible people come together and then they make, you know, something spe- special and specific out of it. And there is a big history on the left of, like, politics based on friendship networks which is like the whole affinity group thing do you know what i mean actually that's probably worth in talking about a little yeah, bit yeah it is yeah because um the term affinity group gets invented in the late 60s by this guy ben moreau who was in a who was in a group which which at one point was called um up against the wall motherfuckers because <laughs> either the best name for a political group or the worst name for a political group I great and they, they called themselves a street gang with an analysis and it's very specific to that late 60s sort of weather underground sort of weird sort of scene um, but he so he started calling himself affini- talking about affinity groups but he got it from talking with Murray Bookchin who's like this big anarchist theorist that the minute the Kurdish movement uh, in 
Rohava, is that? Yeah, Rohava, yeah, really, really into Murray Bookchin. But anyway, so Murray Bookchin had looked at how the Spanish anarchists had organised in the late 19th, early 20th century, and it was all based around sort of friendship groups, probably like, you know, neighbourhood sort of friendship groups. And so he called them affinity groups. And then it got named, and then it has gone on to be like the main form of organisation in certain movements. To some degree, probably, it was one of the main forms of organisation in the sort of alter-globalisation movement, some sort of level. In, in Ende Gelände, definitely, in the environmental yeah. movement. Yeah, well, in, yeah, in, in Germany, it was like, they, they, there's this huge long, like, from the 70s, in fact, from the 60s, I think, for, like, anti-nuclear movement, which is in which that's been the sort of main form of when they, they blockade in tra- trains carrying nuclear waste and all this sort of stuff. Like, you know, that's been the main form of organisation and, like, organised protests of, like, you know, 20, 30,000 and um, so, um, so forth. And what are the characteristics of an affinity group? Well, I mean, they, I mean, it's in the name. <laughs> it's people who have affinity with each other. It's a which unit is not of comrades. movement, isn't it? It's a unit of movement. So it's the unit that acts within toward, towards an action, an action or whatever. Yeah. So if you're, if you're planning, my understanding is if you're planning a demo or you're planning an action, then the it's and this is very simplistic it's it's affinity groups are the are the lowest common denominator and that's because it's the value that's understood to to of, of the of the trust and the the bonds yeah. that exist because of the friendship in being able to move together yeah basically there's a whole structure of organization based around it so if it, affinity group would be a small group of i don't know like between 5 6 up to like 15 people yeah. normally people who know each other very well quite often friendship groups, and um, they would operate together and, you know, join up with other affinity groups. So uh, there's a whole whole sort of net, sort of form of organisation that gets formed on that. So I've been in these uh, the, these things called spokes council meetings where, where basically a, one, a representative of the affinity group sit in the middle in a big circle and then the, the, the rest of the people in the affinity group sit behind them and feed them bits of what they think they should do, etc. Sounds like the Masons. <laughs> <laughs> it probably is. I've seen it work, though. I think the thing is, because uh, the problem with like any politics based on friendship is like, well, hang on, that's not going to scale. I have seen it scale to a certain level. Interesting. Right? Um, you know, so you're coordinating between several thousand people. and But like, I think you need very specific context for that basically you know a fairly politicized crowd and like a, a an, you know an objective which is set in, in in advance like but there's still a problem with, of scaling is that like like you which uh, yeah yeah which gets us into stuff like like you want to you've got shared interests with people who you don't know basically you know that's a that's a you know that's a level of scale which which if you start from an affinity group i don't think you can get to that um so jody deans but when she's because I think that makes a nice contrast because she sort of says like, oh, well, if, if she doesn't say this, but she could say if affinity groups are based on like the specificity of people who know each other, comrade is the complete opposite. It's like it is not about specificity. It's about sameness. And it's like the sameness of being on the on the same side of a conflict. Do you know what I mean? In fact, she'd probably say like the sameness and equality because like you're, you're heading towards the same horizon, which is a communist horizon sort of thing. And so... Like so, there's a there's a tension then between this like the specificity of friendship and like the sameness. And she even talks about gen- generic. A comrade is generic. They can be swapped out, or whatever. Like this gets us somewhere quite <laughs> quite dodgy, I think. But there's the 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 last thing she sort of says in this sort of bit about the friend friendship is 
like one of the things with like anybody can be a comrade but not everybody can be a comrade do you know what i mean so it's not that thing of like the brotherhood of man or something i mean again i think this is something that I uh, I I can't stress enough, like, and even for our listeners, there will be, like, loads of our listeners who don't operate in the sphere where we even use the word comrade at all. Like, for us, it's standard. For me, it's only standard since I joined Plan C. It was really, really weird beforehand. I'd never heard it. Like, in all of my time working on the left, and I had worked on the left, no one had seriously had that kind of used that terminology. But I found it really interesting the way it's been used and the way, like, we come across it in our circles. So you, somebody would be like, blah, 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 so-and-so, and then somebody would say, oh, I thought they thought this, or I thought what they said was a bit dodgy or whatever. And then somebody else would respond and say, don't worry, they're a comrade. And by calling someone a comrade, by a comrade telling you that somebody else is a comrade, it kind of, there's a a real level of trust there of going, of understanding like where the boundaries of your circles are. But it's it's kind of like, how, how do you, how do you expand in terms of like doing politics? Like, how do you expand your sphere of association? And one way that we do that, and by bringing people in and out without actually being introduced to someone through, you know, going to the pub with them or an activity or things of friendship. It's through, it's through somebody saying they're, somebody you trust saying that they're a comrade. See, that's not what Jodie Dean, would, she would say that's not right. Okay. Because, yeah, because her thing is, um, well, it's, it's, I can't quite work it out because one of my problems with it is becoming a comrade seems to be something that you commit to. You sort of say you're a comrade and then you become a comrade. Where, in fact, it's probably something, comradeship is probably something that needs to be built, I think, in reality. And, and, she, and the whole sameness thing from her argument, like, basically, I think it relates to a different era where, where, where sameness was the property of, you know, the Fordist era where sameness was uh, the property of how we lived, you know. You, you knew which side you were on because you might work in the same factory and well i think i think jd would say that the, the sameness comes from the fact that we all have a common class interest and we all so you know we're all we're all part of the proletariat i mean there's two, there's several things going on in that book about comradeship which i but i do really recommend so there's partly this the critique of identity politics allyship and the suggestion that the notion of comrade is a better is a better idea which i, I completely resonates with me um there's, but there's also her, her wider. There's also fitting that argument into her much more sustained political and theoretical project over multiple books, which is about def- basically defending uh, a very classical ideal of the, basically the Leninist Party, and um, and her insistence that you know you can only really be a comrade by joining the party and joining the party. Is I mean, a commitment. but that's where it gets dodgy, though, <laughs> because no, that commitment is the point. Her, the point of being a comrade is that it's about getting the discipline. That you need in if you're going to transform the world, basically, it's about trying to find discipline again, right? And I, I think that's a really interesting thing of like, where do you find the discipline? Because lots of examples in that book are, are like drawn from like completely different societies to the one we live in now, where you had this faith that you were going in a certain direction and that would allow discipline. But as soon as the discipline is then and comradeship is sort of reduced a little bit to people in the same party, well, that just sets up. You know, the loyalty of comrades sets up all of this terrible behaviour that's happened, you know, historically in the 20th century and today in political parties of all of this covering up 
Do you know what I mean? Like, it's interesting to think about. It'll be interesting to think about that. Like, if we think about the actual concrete historical experience that we've all lived through, the sort of experience of Corbynism and the kind of moments of the 2015 to 2020, because, yeah, definitely a sense of a much broader sort of sense of comradeship across many different kind of, you know, groups and, and, and people from the left did emerge out of that. You know, it created a sense of, you know, I mean, my, I mean, the, really for me, in, in some sense, the most important aspect of the whole experience was people who had been in, in very different little niche bits of the left before or in no bit of the left at all coming together around a sort of common project. And on a certain level, I think J, JD's analysis works very well, that there was this sense of sameness, the sense that, OK, it didn't really matter now that you were a Trotskyist or a, or a tanky or an, or an anarcho-syndicalist or you'd been in the sort of soft left or a green, that we were all now, we were all going to join the Labour Party. And indeed, it did, to, to some extent, require the, the party. You know, we were all going to join the party. We were all going to support Jeremy. We were all against both the people in the party trying to sabotage him and we were against the Tories. So that, and that, and that was sort of fantastic. But... I think, I mean, implicit, I think what you're getting at, Keir, is that, well, the, you know, the, the sort of Lacanian, almost sort of Badewian kind of framework for uh, Jody would say that, well, there's this sort of, there is this sort of, you know, at an abstract level, there's some sort of definitive moment at which you make the commitment, like you are now part of this thing and you've subjected yourself to a certain kind of discipline. And the point you, you would be making is that from our sort of Deleuzean perspective and Quetarian perspective, actually what's going on is a set of molecular processes whereby these relationships build up, you know, comradeship emerges, you know, as a sort of emergent property of the effective relationships of the people who are struggling together and working together. That It isn't the result of a kind of singular moment of decision. But I think sort of both things are true. I, I mean, agree. I think both things are both true. Things are tr- both things are true at the same time. That there is, you know, you re- there is a moment where you decide you're either you're either for it or against it, you know. And you, and I, um, I recognise the whole generic thing as well. From like when you go canvassing and you just jump in a car with people you don't exactly. know. Exactly. Like it's but not exactly. they're not it's not the specificities, is it? But then when you're going round, you're chatting and you're getting on. <laughs> and it, yeah, okay, okay. But 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 also, I mean, it's like it's like. I can't remember which episode it was that I was just like, I just think, you know, Jezza and John McDonald are solid comrades. Like, I, I, would, I don't know them. Like, I, I'd love to have a cup of tea with both of them or go to the pub. With them. But I, I, like, I feel like they are my comrades, right? And that, that there is that, that, there's also like a flattening of it as well. So it's not, not in terms of a hierarchy necessarily, but like doesn't like people of different ages who have been doing different things at different points by calling them a comrade, you're bringing, you're, you're expanding your field of like what the, the project or the struggle is as well. And I think psychologically, that's also really important is like, it's knowing that, you know, that whole thing of like standing on the shoulders of giants, which like always gives me goose pimples just now, just even saying it like that you that you come from a trajectory and then and also over space in different countries, you will always also find your comrades. And the fact that, you know, with us in terms of like our international travel or whatever you if you're you know, if you're doing like political work, you get placed or you get you get um you get put in contact with people who somebody else will say is a comrade. Now, they might not end up being your friend, but it expands your world as part of this project massively and it expands the potential for you both to do work, but to build affinity, etc. So I do think both things are true. 
Well, it's true, and it's also in terms of thinking about you know the, you know, the specificity specificity of our moment. You know, when I was I was you know I was in the states for a few months teaching and working, and I met you know, various people who were in DSA, Democratic Socialist of America, who were supporting the Bernie campaign, and there was just no there was nothing to even spell out. Everybody knew anyone who was a Corbynite here was a was a comrade of someone who was a supporter of Bernie in the states, and it and there there would have been there wouldn't really have been anything like that for, for over the past few decades i mean there was i guess i guess we could go back to say to 2003 or something and say well everybody who was in there were people in who were in reclaim the streets in the uk would have felt like they were sort of comrades of people in who were you know doing kind of you know anti-globalization protest in the states but it was not, on nothing like the same sort of scale really yeah, no, yeah and, it's um, the scale isn't it that's it's the scale but, and also the but also and also jd is right because it wasn't i mean my great criticism of that whole scene in the early 2000s was always that it never got outside of a certain logic of identity and that it was basically a whole lifestyle and a sort of you know it, that you would be assumed the to be sharing with these people kind of yeah the exactly the activist and like if you if you weren't a vegan like you wouldn't really be a comrade of the ones who were vegan there's a lot of know, that still was, going on though yeah <laughs> there's a no, lot know, of that but, lifestyle but there was, shit going on not in labor not in labor but under no that that, so, and Jody is right. I mean, it is a very powerful argument about the, the function of the party, even, and the, or the ideal of party in some way. I was I was wanting to just think about that consciousness raising group. So we've we've all since we've been experimenting with a group of other people from the from the world transformed in doing um, Zoom based COVID nineteen based uh, consciousness raising where we just meet once a week and you know discuss how we're feeling in relation to COVID, but also a series of questions so it sort of starts with your personal experience and then you're trying to work out the commonalities so you're working your way up to up to comradeship or, or working your way up to recognizing you're on the same side and recognizing the specificities of that do you know what i mean well it is really interesting isn't it because i well i would but i would say for me the condition of possibility of the consciousness raising group is that we are all already comrades. yes yeah, yeah it might and even it might if we're not be, friends yeah. Yeah. And we're sort of becoming friends in, in a sort of, it's a sort of politicised, deliberate cultivation of friendship on some way, is what is sort of what we're engaged in. And and that notion of a politicised, of a deliberate cultivation of friendship, it also, that also does have a certain kind of genealogy. It's there, I mean, I was thinking about this before, this is also, it's in more, in more than one sort of spiritual tradition the friend is the ideal sort of form of egalitarian relationship. I mean, friendship is the ideal form of egalitarian relationship. So the Quakers, who, you know, play such an important role in, in the kind of English, in the English-speaking world, it as a sort of, often as sort of, a, you know, incubating certain kinds of radical ideas, you know, their official name is the Religious Society of Friends. And, for, and that, when it was first adopted, it was a completely radical statement because it was a sta- it was an explicit rejection of any kind of institutional hierarchy, and and um, 
And also in the Buddhist tradition, there's this notion of, of what's called spiritual friendship. And spiritual friendship is specifically a relationship which is different from a relationship between a, like a senior and a junior person in, a, in any form of hierarchy or, you know, sort of institution or teaching relationship. So, and, and the, the spiritual friend is, is the peer. It's like the notion of peer and peer review, like in, in the university. So, and... Um, it's really interesting about the Quakers because... Like the politicized Quaker movement it was one of the the main vectors through which that sort of affinity group spokes council form of organization developed. You know, that's the way it spread, uh, particularly in the US with um, this group called the Movement for a New Society. It was sort of came out of the peace movement and the Quaker movement. So it probably does have deep deep roots in Quaker friendship. It's true. Well, I think the idea, I think the consciousness raising, I mean, the consciousness raising group for some people definitely came out, you know, for some people in the late 60s, it was coming out of similar practices from the peace movement that came straight out of of Quaker meeting, you know, because in, I mean, the Quaker form of religious, you know, experience is just, you're supposed to all sit in a room together and and nobody even gives a a speech, nobody even gives a sermon, everybody's supposed to sort of, you're basically in a group meditation until somebody's spontaneously moved to just stand up and speak and then people just listen or or they don't, or they respond or they don't. So it is this sort of... Sounds like podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about uh, uh, History Lessons Part 2 by the Minutemen, who were a sort of uh, late 70s, early 80s, sort of a punk band. They were sort of into that DIY punk, sort of almost punk hardcore scene, but they're not particularly hardcore at all. So History Lessons Part 2 comes from an album called Double Nickels on a Dime from 1984. And it's just a really great song about friendship, about a particular friendship between two of the members of the band, Mike Watt and Dee Boone. Um, who basically like well a lot of fr- a lot of bands are sort of based around around a friendship basically and and friends egging each other on into sort of like new enthusiasms etc and that's exactly what that's exactly what this song is um, you know it's basically it's a song about get them getting into punk together um, and learning about the world together it's got a good a good story well there's a good and tragic story arc to the song. Because there's a very good documentary called We Jam Econo about the band. And in that, there's it's Mike Watt talking about when they first met, basically. And it, the the story is that um, Dee Boone fell out of a tree and landed on top of Mike Watt. And um, it's like a nice image because it's like this clash of bodies, this chance class, you know, because I think we were sort of alluding earlier that, like, that friendships can have this moment of chance on them. Just, you know, you have a collision of bodies and, like, Mike Watt just says, like, that moment changed absolutely everything in my life, basically. Our band of scientists rock. But I was E. Bloom and Richard Hell, Joe Strummer and John Doe. Me and Mike Watt playing a guitar. falls out a tree hits hits mike watt and they become best friends and like just like it's a, it's a particular type of friendship which is just you know about finding new enthusiasms and like a lot of the songs from that are, are, are from a lot of the lines from the songs really relate to that so the band forms in 1979 the record comes out in 1984 in 1985 d boone dies in a car crash and obviously mike watt is completely completely sort of devastated and, you know, it basically affects the rest of his life, really. And the documentary ends with this really great clip of Mike Watt talking about, um, you know, the importance of 
of sort of, of of finding your own friends to be creative with, basically. You know, he said you've got to find friends to be creative with to create dreams together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's something really interesting about. I mean, that in particular that American kind of early eighties that hardcore punk scene. I think there is a certain sort of idea, very pure ideal of friendship. You know, I mean, a lot of those bands, yeah, you know, seem to have these very intense personal relationships, and there's this idea. You know, which is I, which I think is sort of reacting against you know the emerging the emergent hegemony of this sort of crass individualism and consumerism of Reaganism and and a certain and an ideal of the kind of the affinity group actually the you know even though that term wouldn't always have been scene. used as a scene. sort of as a sort of refuge from a refuge from the the kind of ravaging effects of neoliberalism on social relationships in general. I think it is quite important. There's also something there in in that hardcore, you know, in the sort of straight edge rejection of the sort of rejection of romance and sexuality as all as in some sense less pure forms of relationship than just, you know, your friendships, like the the people in the band. And and also there was often an attempt, or it's basically failed attempt, but usually, but it's an attempt to have a kind of a element of sexual egalitarianism as well. There's an there's an ideal that kind of women should be able to be in the band as well. I still don't know how many friends you guys actually have. I mean, there probably are sort of, you know, about half a dozen people. I mean, to be honest, they're all, they are, the, the people in, in the close the closest circle of friends, they are all white men, sort of middle-class white men with whom I just have an, an incredibly overlapping sense of, you know, we're, we're all really into like about two or three different things together. They've got to be really into two out of three of like, you know, left politics, uh, you know, sort of academics sort of cultural theory and psychedelic or psychedelic drugs. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're into like, they're into, t- they've got to be into at least two out of three of those. You've got your checklist, <laughs> which you check in before you meet. Uh, meet no, up. I can't ever, that's the thing. That's what, that's what those people all, that's why I have in common with all those people. And there's enough of a kind of common vocabulary and... You know, we haven't talked that we haven't talked at all about class and friendship. When I was growing up, and, and I don't know how much this is delusion or fantasy, but I, I, I grew up in a classic. You know, Eric Collins Wright would call the kind of contradictory class location. You know, that we we were poor and we lived among other poor people. But my parents, you know, my my parents had been to uni- well, my mum had my da- my dad and my stepdad had both been to university and had sort of professional qualifications and my mum came from a kind of upper middle class family where in the generation above her everyone had gone to university you know you know her generation hadn't because they were sort of 60s rebels so it's this complete contradictory class location but I also and I grew up with this real sense that that were amongst the working class and this was the northern English or traditional working class there was a real sense of kind of loyalty towards and generosity towards your mates that was totally lacking from the fucking bourgeois, from the bourgeoisie, amongst whom friends were people you were friends with for much more instrumental reasons, you know, and people with whom you had a slightly more competitive relationship. They were the people who, you know, you wanted to get into the better university then rather than the people, you know, you would live or die for. And those are ridiculous cliches, but they also had a, they did really, they, that, there was also a certain truth to it that had a real kind of Im, I, effect on my, my politics growing up. I mean, Marx always says this about capitalism itself. Mar, I mean, Marx says capitalism m- makes the maintenance of social relationships itself a challenge, that it, all, it tends to dissolve all social relationships. It tends to dissolve them all into what he calls the cash nexus. And I think, you know, as we've gone, as we've lived through a kind of second wave of 
you know, not a second wave. Like we've lived through a, a new, you know, a, a new wave of intense kind of resurgence of capitalist power since the end of the 60s. You know, we've seen a massive, you know, it has put massive pressure on, on lots of people's ability to form friendships. And there is a sense, it's partly why there is a sense a lot of the time that, you know, forming friendships, just just forming friendships feels like a resistant act sometimes, doesn't it? I feel like you're right in saying that it feels like a good friendship exists outside the system. Like, it, it does feel like an antithesis to the way daily life is lived. For me, for me, definitely. That's definitely true. That's because it shouldn't be based on, like, you know, calculation of interests, isn't it? Which is why, like, the most horrific and human parts of, like, neoliberal doctrine around human capital when people start to, to think about, like, a their trans- friendships. And transactional at, as well. Yeah. Transactional, yeah, that's what I mean. Their friendships and even their romantic relationships as some sort of level of transactional, yeah, as a transaction basically, yeah, a exactly, transaction yeah, rather than based exactly. on something which is a which is a bit more um, ungraspable. No, that, yeah, exactly, and that's partly why the friend, you know, the and, and that is that's also a thing that Derrida says about the friend. Actually, is friendship is that it's it has to be incal- it's sort of incalculable because it can't be transactional because it can't be it can't be simply quantified, even though it has to happen within this horizon of equality. And that's partly why it is you know it is so important as an ideal for people a friendship, and it's partly why the the law. I mean, social media, its good aspects and its bad aspects are all based on holding out the lure of friendship, the possibility of friendship, because people feel that sort of friendship and labourliness are things that are absent, are excessively absent from the kind of alienated scene. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is Keir had this statistic, didn't he? Keir saw this statistic, and I've seen that as well, that that when, you know, when people, you know, that social surveys about people's relationships and friendships... I mean, according to the quantitative data, at least in like places like the UK and the US, more and more people when asked, "Do you have a confidant? Do you, um, you know, do you, you know, do you have you know, how many kind of really close friends do you have?" More and more people just say zero; they don't have any friends. I mean, one intuitively, one immediately recognises that is that is alienation. You know, that is that is a, a you know, that is a symptom of you know the the damage that capitalism does to human sociality, isn't it? Dinosaur L, Go Bang, um, by Arthur Russell, and most famously remixed by Francois K. It's like arguably the definitive loft classic with the slow, the, the famous chorus, I want to see all of my friends at once. And in fact, one of the parties that I help organise and very occasionally DJ at is called All My Friends, in a, in a direct reference to that. And so the ideal of having all of your friends in, in the one place, the kind of simultaneously of all your friends, it's a kind of utopian trope in dance music uh, lyrics going back to the... 70s and and i would say in light of a lot of things we've talked about actually see i think we i don't we haven't quite said this properly have we or we've sort of alluded to it several times but look the the cliche the sociological cliche about contemporary friendship is it's is that 
people either don't have friends or the, or they have these very complex overlapping or completely disaggregated circles of friends and that what people don't have and can't have anymore is is what Nadia calls the crew the the coherent group of friends who sort of go through their lives together as a cohort in some way and and the people can't have that be precisely because neoliberalism and post-forwardism made it impossible they made it impossible because people have work on short-term contracts and they have to move for work and they have children at different times and and they are forced to when they have children they're forced to retreat into their nuclear households and somehow leave the partially leave the friendship group and so people can't have these fully coherent sort of cohorts of friends who sort of go through their lives together and you know, one argument is, well, that is very damaging because historically one of the bases, the, the most basic units of class solidarity in a political solidarity is the cohort mm. friends, you know, the exactly. people you went to school with, the people you stayed at work with, the people who were your neighbours, the people, if you were a man, the, pe- the, pe- the people you served with in the army for a bit. You know, and, and that was historically, that was a, a basic unit of class solidarity and, and even, well, not, not so much of cross-class solidarity, but potentially in some communities. And, so, and the fact that people don't have that experience makes the practice of solidarity and the feeling of solidarity much more difficult. And, um, and, so, and I think partly the reason the, this, this, the, the idea of having all of your friends at once, all of your friends in the same place, for one kind of glorious moment is precisely it becomes a utopian moment ideal in the 70s at precisely the moment when it is becoming something that people are conscious is no longer possible something that doesn't happen anymore and i think that and i think that is really significant oh now look kid everybody's got to have friends hey fellas are we his friends we're your friends we're your friends we're your friends to the bitter end. The bitter end. And we want to be your friend. This is Matt, part of the team who puts the show together behind the scenes with a very quick note to tell you that in the show notes of this episode, um, you'll find a widget to put your email address into to sign up for a brand new ACFM mailing list. I'm not totally sure what's going in there yet, but in the spirit of friendship, we wanted to take this opportunity for us to become friends, if only digitally. And finally, we just want to say a big thank you to a friend of the show, Ileana Kerr, who's done some beautiful new illustrations for the podcast. Check out her work in the show notes. Big up yourself, Illy. Okay, boys, play us out. And when you're outside looking in, who's there to open the door? Come on, kid, we need a tenner. What friends are for. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.